Hello everybody, welcome to episode 36 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me is Ben Marshall. And for this 36th episode, we're going to be revisiting the uh, crocodilians of Southeast Asia. Yeah, it was all the way back, what was it, episode 14 that we did a Tomistoma related episode. And yeah. And back in Southeast Asia, but a little bit more diverse set of crocodiles than just one species. Yeah, we talked a little, actually the Tomistoma episode ended up being quite diverse in the end because we did that paper which was kind of all the different crocodiles and how like naughty they can be. Oh um, yes, it was the young ones and how much they liked, liked to uh, fight with each other, right? <laughs> yeah, it was. They were all misbehaving, yeah. going crazy. Oh, that was good. Um, it was a really cool paper. It was very thorough. Uh, but then, yeah, this time there is still Tomistoma in it, but um, yeah, they play an even smaller role and we're looking a bit more at Siamese crocodiles, which are um, yeah, seemingly in a bit of trouble. So quite an interesting species in terms of conservation. Extremely. And I think the only species of crocodile I have seen in the wild. Uh, I've seen one in the wild, but I have seen other crocodiles as well. Ah, well. There you go. <laughs> Got you there. <laughs> oh, one-upmanship. Um, yeah, so where you were saying before the show, Ben, that you've um, you've actually seen a Tomistoma since have. we last spoke. Yes. Or a Tomistoma, however you're supposed to pronounce it. I went to the zoo and I saw one. Sitting in an enclosure, just doing crocodile things, you know, just mulling it over. Yeah, apparently they're good-looking yeah, creatures. I... They're 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 pretty awesome. I can see why you were so taken with them when you saw them. Well, yeah, and in addition to the fact that they are obviously like amazing, I'd never actually even heard of them. <laughs> so <laughs> I literally just turned a corner and there was this ginormous crocodile there, or at least crocodilian. And, um, yeah, I was just completely gobsmacked by it, really. Also saw, on that same trip, completely off-topic, uh, off a uh, blue uh, cryptolotrops macrops. Oh, you mean the insularis from no, Komodo? No, I mean macrops, and it was blue. Really? Yeah. Because I was under the impression that it was insularis that was blue ones, but apparently you do get blue macropses. It's just a pigment deficiency or uh, overabundance, whichever way causes it. Deficiency, I think. It's weird that a deficiency of pigment creates blue, because blue is a really weird, mysterious colour for an animal to be. Like, Did look it's all, real um, cool, though. structural, isn't it? Maybe it's what they look like when they have no yellow. <laughs> yes. Maybe it's xanthic, so like, they are... Perhaps the yellow underneath mixes with the weird... I don't know. That's really mysterious, though. I'd love to see that. Because we saw some macrops uh, that had... Um, they were yellow, like around the head and neck. They they had sort of like... So it was almost like their, the blue was missing to make the green. Um, but yeah, that's really cool. Did you take a picture? Yes. I have a little video of it. Ooh. Well, I'd like to see that at some point. I'll send it on. <laughs> Back to crocodiles, <laughs> Back to crocodiles, yeah. Stop getting distracted. We're not here to talk about snakes. Not this not this bi week. Um Should we get stuck into the first paper? If you can tell me which the first paper is. Um it's the Stanewix et al. Yes, twenty eighteen. That is correct. Okay. <laughs> Stan so this is Stanewix, Bella, Damansia, 
and Jones 2018 niche partitioning between juvenile sympatric crocodilians in Mesangat Lake, East Kalimantan, Indonesia. And this was published in the Raffles Bulletin of Zoology. Hmm. Yeah. So, one of the few places in the world... Well, no, perhaps that's that's not really true. I was going to say one of the few places in the world that you can see multiple species of crocodile on one trip. Yeah. But I had a sentence like quite, that too, but then... Yeah, like crocodiles are quite restricted in terms of where they actually are these days. So maybe that's maybe that's fair. Yeah, well, regardless, it is quite unusual that they're like living in sympatry anyway. Um, and this paper is about niche partitioning, which is um, the way the animals are splitting up the environment. So um, obviously with two crocodiles in one place, they can't be doing exactly the same thing because they'd compete too much, presumably. Um, so yeah, this paper's all about how and if they uh, they kind of share resources in a way. Um, so, well, just by doing different things. So an example of niche partitioning would be, obviously this isn't going to be what crocodiles are doing, but one animal saves a forest environment. One's living high in the trees and eating leaves in the sun, and one's dwelling on the floor eating mushrooms. That would be niche partitioning. Yeah. One's clearly got them a raw deal out of those two yeah one of them doesn't get to taste the delicious mushrooms <laughs> <laughs> but um, in the case of these guys yeah. what are we dealing with we're dealing with uh, Crocodilus simensis so the Siamese yes. crocodile and we're dealing with uh, Thomastoma shugeli yeah or is that yeah, I so, um, it's double I Schlegel-I. I always pronounce it Schlegel-I. Schlegel-I. Yeah. Thomas Because uh, <laughs> there's so many animals with the um, species epithet Schlegel-I. Yep. Uh, or is there just two? Does it have a third one? I can't remember. But um, Well, I can think of I two off might... the top of my head. Yeah. What's your other one? The um, eyelash pipe eyelash, pit right there? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the one I've got. But I have a suspicion I had a third one rattling around in my brain. But I've forgotten it, regardless. Um, yeah, well, it doesn't matter. But um, yeah, so to miss them, uh, they're huge, aren't they? They're up to five metres long, the males anyway. And um, they're a big crocodilian found in Indonesia, uh, Malaysia. Well, both Peninsular Malaysia and Malaysian Borneo. Um, although probably extinct in Sabah. Um, and they're also found in the nation of Brunei, which is... Um, the little country that's tucked inside Malaysian Borneo. And they used to be in Thailand, but now they're extinct. Yeah, it's pretty much a story of dramatically reduced range and dramatically reduced numbers and really not a great state of affairs, to be frank. No. No, it's not too good. Um, well, and there's a very similar story for Siamese crocodiles as well. Absolutely. Uh, Was it meant to be so... less than a thousand in the wild? Yeah, they're critically endangered, um, and yeah, they've got a really fragmented range in lakes and swamps. Mm. It's kind of remote places in um, southern and northeastern Cambodia, um, the Lao People's Democratic Republic, and um, eastern Kalimantan. Uh, so yeah, it's not what it used to be. They used to be pretty much all over Cambodia, didn't they? Um, well, and in yeah. Thailand too. 
I think we'll sort of deal with that in a little bit more detail with the second paper, though. I think we'll save the okay. save the range and the connectivity stuff for that, and get yeah, that's fair. into the sort of lives of these guys. Yeah. And so in terms of this paper, we're back, aren't we, at Messengat the uh, Messengat, which is um, Indonesian Borneo. It's a big wetland. Yes. And uh, yeah, like you said earlier, it's unusual because there's both Siamese crocodiles and Tamistima found there. And find found in numbers that you can actually study them, which is perhaps even more remarkable for these species. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. So what's the what's the motivation behind this? Basically, both of these species are pretty unknown in terms of ecology. I mean, it's it's kind of shameful, really. These big, charismatic uh, beasts. Yeah, we know very little about juvenile diets and how they're living their lives and certainly over the range that they spread it's going to have all sorts of variation and the traditional ideas are that Simensis is going to be largely generalist the sort of shape of the snout and general things like that and a Tomistoma is more likely to be a fish specialist with its slimmed out snout so it can move it rapidly through the water with very little drag yeah, I enjoyed their use of the technical terms for those kinds of snouts. I'd never seen them before. Remind me. Um, so, longer rostrine is long-jawed, which is the Tomistoma with its long, skinny jaw. Um, and the Siamese crocodiles are brevirostrine, which means shortened jaws. Hmm. Not easy words to sort of have fall into common usage, really. <laughs> it's probably easier just to say long-jawed or short-jawed, but um, yeah, still, it's cool that those words exist. And as you say, like, um, they are differently shaped. The Siamese crocodiles have sort of got a shorter, fatter head, and the uh, Tomistons have got the long, thin snout. Hmm. And generally speaking, um, that is the case for crocodiles which occur together. There's usually one that has a different like skull morphology than the other and um yeah the common understanding is that they partition the habitat based on the prey that they're eating um well yeah that's it partition the partition the food yeah exactly that's what this paper is looking to test essentially whether it whether they're existing in proper not just in patchy but the other word which i forget uh sin syntopy syntopy yes so whether they're actually same place but different foods or slightly different places and potentially more similar diets yeah 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 it's it's cool like um the other the sort of analog to this is um the gharials and the marshmugger crocodiles in places like nepal with the gharials being really slender snouted and the marshmuggers being really heavy set so they're in the same waterways but they're just doing different things where the old uh, the marshmuggers are kind of a water's edge predator eating birds and mammals, and the gharials are you know weird gangly looking fish eaters that hang around in the uh, in the water trying to catch fish. And it's also worth knowing that niche partitioning is not limited to just the things we're saying here. It can also be a sort of uh, temporal thing, so dealing with different seasons or different times of day, something along those lines. So yes, there's a lot of layers to be tested to work out wherever there is some level of partitioning going on. And that's mm. sort of the game plan with this study. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, like you say, they were looking at 
the diet of these two animals by stomach flushing them, which is pretty grisly. And uh, they were also looking at their nesting patterns. Um, seasonal changes. Yeah, yeah, the seasonal stuff to do with yeah. Um, yeah, their nesting. Breeding and, and uh, nesting, yeah. Oh, yeah, and when the babies were kicking around as well, right? But this is also, yeah, when there's, when there's young, when there's juveniles, when they could actually find nests, that sort of stuff. But before we... Mm, I don't know. What bit do you want to dive into first? May you lead on. Because I'll get this out of the way first then. With the, um, the only sort of problem I really see with this study, other than just, you know, it's hard work finding crocodiles in a difficult bit of terrain, is that the crocodile surveys, the problem with them is they're just saying that they've seen more crocodiles in these habitats and those habitats. So basically, yeah. they came up with um, two habitat types that were in this area, sort of open, unforested area that was characterized by open, well, patches of open water, but floating vegetation and grass mats, that sort of stuff. And then the other type that was characterized more with trees and a bit more actual land. So you had these two habitat types, and then they were judging whether one was seen more in one habitat and the other, and using that as evidence for the partitioning, uh, spatial partitioning, habitat partitioning, one preferring one yeah. type of area to the other. While that's all well and good with the results they got, because it's pretty convincing, what did we have? We had 84% of their tomistomas were found in the forested areas, and then 98% of Siamensis were found in the open areas. So that's pretty pretty convincing the downside of this sort of they get away with it because results are so one-sided but the downside is you're not taking into account how likely you are to see a species in these different habitats so your probability of detecting that species can change per species and per habitat so just because you're seeing more there doesn't mean there are more there it could just be that you're more likely to see them there and accounting for that is not the easiest thing in the world, but to confidently say that there are more in that area than another area, it sort of has to be worked through. Yeah, yeah. There was a meme on Facebook about using count data in lieu of um, measuring detectability prob- properly recently. <laughs> yes, there was something about relative abundance instead of actually trying to work out what abundance was with detectability yeah it yeah it causes yeah. all sorts of problems because at the end of the day animals are hard to spot herpetofauna are perhaps some of the worst offenders for that we talked about sicilians and how yeah. you find one on average every t- what was it 10 hours or something yeah <sighs> that level of detectability is is just minuscule you have no idea. Mm-hmm. It'd be so hard to work out what a population of Sicilians would be like. And the same sort of principle goes in a sort of habitat like this. It's very difficult to traverse. And although crocodiles are bigger, they say in the paper that they can dive for so long that you could go right over the top of one, never see it. So yeah. real real issues with trying to find these crocs and not accounting for detectability could cause some issues with getting proper population estimates and things like that. Yeah. They also mention in... I'm not sure if it's this paper or one of their other ones. They mention that um, 
crocodiles become really capture shy after you've caught them once. So like mark recapture can be really difficult to do because they really do remember getting dragged onto a boat and measured. Yeah. Um, and they'll re- they will avoid that like at, at any cost, which makes sense. Um, but like most snakes, I don't think have the foresight to try and actually you know evade you that you know if they see you coming they're going to try and get out of your way regardless whereas but again in the first instance if you know that you can model for it and you can account for it in your estimates because as soon as you've ca- yeah. caught an individual you know the the probability of catching that individual again will be less than catching a new individual so mm. you can account for these things is you just need a bigger data set and yeah it's just well it's just not particularly easy <laughs> at no. the end of the day but thankfully with the targeting of this paper i don't think it really undermines what they're getting at because i mean it's just so one side so one-sided yeah that it's it's hard to believe that suddenly tomistomers would be impossible to find in a non-forested area but they were more of them there. Like it would just be such a massive flip flop to what they saw. Yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't. It, yeah, it just didn't, it, it just wouldn't make sense. No, if it would it would be different if um if, if you were marginal? finding loads of siamensis in the in the floating mats and then finding nothing in the uh, in the uh, forested areas. Yeah, or then finding lots of siamensis in both. That would be yeah, the yeah. like if there just wasn't too much difference, but it was only to Mister yeah. like potentially detection probabilities changing because of the way they use the environment then you'd start having real suspicions that uh, you'd have to try and work work that out mm. but in terms of um should we talk a little bit about the diet stuff yes 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 yeah so it did seem from their study that um siamensis were well they were definitely larger um and they preyed on more mammals and fish than the tomistoma but um there weren't there wasn't enough of a difference that they could actually like statistically say, you know, they're significantly different. Um, which, as you kind of alluded to earlier, might just be because there weren't that many crocodiles caught. Um, so, it's yeah, it's not enough to. S- to... <sighs> I on. mean, you've got to presume that there's probably. Let's we're taking it as granted as they're using different habitats, right? Because I'm overall yeah. the paper does convince me of that, hundred percent. So you're going to expect some differences in diets because you'd expect the available prey to be slightly different in those habitats too, right? Yeah. But whether it's actually statistically significant is almost... It's how long's a piece of string. You can sort of get a negative result and carry on studying and carrying on studying. You know, by chance you could suddenly get a significant one or not. It, it, to me, this makes not getting it on the number that they got okay fine because it also makes logical sense in context with the habitats because okay that's where the partitioning is happening in the habitats not in the diets yeah that's true so although yes it might still be expected and maybe yes you will find a significant difference with greater numbers of crocodiles or a bigger sample but it doesn't undermine it one way or another that it isn't there because it makes logical yeah. sense in the context that there isn't one. So you're not not really thinking, oh, there's not enough crocodiles in this sample. 
Yeah, because they're petitioning in a different way. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That is true. Um, they also were looking at whether or not um, there was kind of this ontogenetic change so that as the crocodiles got bigger, whether or not their diet was changing. Um, but um, they didn't. Ca- they, they said themselves they didn't catch enough adults to really be sure of that. Um, so, yeah, again, like that's just kind of to be confirmed. Mm. Um, but, yeah, uh, what was interesting as well, they... Um, both of the species had lots of vegetation in their stomachs, um, which uh, they said is likely to be a result of accidentally eating plants when they're capturing prey. <laughs> it's not really something. Not really something I'd ever give them much thought to. The fact that they um, they're accidentally ingesting a lot of plant material, and um, I really wa- like. I wonder if like, obviously they've probably been in accidentally in- eating a lot of plant material for quite some time. I wonder if they actually have actually got a purpose for it at all. Um, there are quite a few things that eat a bit of veg on the side to help with digestion and stuff. I mean, you see dogs eat grass all the time. Not that a crocodile's like a dog, but yeah. <laughs> river dog. Um, oh, river yeah, dog would like, be like well, there was that. It was the bonnethead shark, right? That recently got found to be eating a huge amount of seagrass, just like sneakily eating grass. <laughs> But um, yeah, that's probably a little bit of a different thing. But regardless, I just thought it was kind of an interesting thing. They're accidentally eating loads of vegetation. Um, I suppose a lot of the vegetation, because Messengat's covered in these mats of non-native species. So they're probably accidentally mm. eating a load of non-native plants, which is just a bit random. I don't think, I can't imagine it's necessarily an issue. It's just kind of a thing. But um, yeah, I reckon it, it, what this paper kind of said to me was that like there's, there's obviously some differences between these two crocodiles, um, or crocodilians. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, like you say, there's a difference in how close they are to either floating mats of vegetation or trees. The Tamistema seem to be hanging out close to the sort of like tree-lined areas, while the Siamensis are cruising around on the floating mats or underneath. So, um, I mean, that's quite cool of itself. Uh, it'd be interesting to see whether or not that's reflected in the habitats these species select when they're away from this particular environment or whether or not it's a facet of the fact that the other one's there. Yes, well, that's another thing that you have to take into account when you're doing uh, something like an occurrence study is you've got to take into account, okay, if this species is in this location, does that alter the probability of another species being there? So you can do just, okay, I'm going to look at this species but you might be missing out on what's actually causing that species to be there if you're just looking at habitat and it's actually another species forcing it there. Because you mm. certainly look at their map and it is a very convincing picture of open areas being one species, forest areas being the uh, Tomistoma, isn't it? Yeah. So there's, be def- really interesting yeah, there's to definitely see. something going on, 100%. Yeah. And... Um... Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see if there's any kind of antagonistic stuff going on between the two species. Yeah. Obviously, that's going to be hard to film. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to know if there are, if there is a dominant one, which one's the dominant one? Like, is it the one, well, going... are the Tomistomas getting the best habitat by hanging out by the trees and picking on the Siamensis? Or is it the other way around, the Tomistoma are skirting the edges and uh, hanging around by the trees because it's the only place they can relax without worrying that a Siamensis is going to come after them? Well... I'd be curious to see... If we go oh, maybe, back to our, maybe none of that's our croc, croc aggressiveness or, or antagon, yeah, antagonistic what did it say? behavior, what did it say? wasn't it the ones with the more delicate sort of snouts were less likely to be in proper beefy fights? 
Yeah, did that was the kind of overall thing, wasn't it? Because yeah. like, saltwater crocodiles were vicious brutes, weren't they? And they're <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so it would make a lot of sense to avoid conflict in that sort of situation, especially if you got a more delicate snout. Okay, gonna live in the forest, and maybe it's better in other ways. Who knows? Um, it's worth mentioning the nests they found. Only oh, a yeah, few. Yeah. One to Mister Nest and two. Simensis nests, right? Yep. And sort of ma- pretty much matching up with what was what was previously thought or suggested was to Mr. Mayor making a nest in a sort of drier area near the base of trees. Again, backing up the habitat separation sort of thing because you've also got them nesting there. That's implying that they are using it thoroughly. So it's not just uh, for foraging and living. It's also for reproduction. And Simensis was on, was it, floating uh, patches of vegetation, right? Yeah, it sounds so risky to build a nest on a floating patch of vegetation, but they obviously know what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to stop any sort of non-semi-aquatic creature getting into it, isn't it? It really is, yeah. Egg-stealing species. Yeah, building your nest on a floating island is a pretty novel approach. Yeah. Yeah. Although people do still eat their eggs, I think, don't they? It's one of the big threats, yep. Egg stealing. Mm. It's a big, big problem. Mm. Yeah, so um, so yeah, in short, it seems like they are petitioning the habitat, which is nice. Everyone's getting along well. Splitting yep. it up. Um, yeah, it may be that they're eating different things. Maybe not. Um, yeah, to be beginning confirmed. to but suggest that, it's, that it's, you know, I think... You could sort of say that the juveniles they caught seemed to be more general generalists than they were expecting, yeah. which is worth mentioning, hundred percent, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, cool. So, um, yeah, should we move on to the second paper? Yeah, man. Cool. Yeah, I, I've just as a sort of roundup, pretty convinced that there's some sort of niche partitioning going on between those species. I like it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's it's. it's yeah, it's a hard thing to get evidence for. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of hard effort and hard work. And if you're not getting the captures, then there's not, you know, you're really stuck at that point. That's one of the problems we have out here is getting just enough captures to work with and recaptures. Yeah. So there's only so much, you can't just make that happen. No, no. Yeah, and then, of course, there's added layers of complexity because even within a species, there can be niche partitioning, so... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you might just be getting a certain subset of the population if that's the way your capture methods are going. Yeah. So. Cool. Well, should we uh, move on to the next one? Yeah. So the next one we've got Illo Bonk Hartman uh, Geisler Bella and Rodder published a paper in 2015 so a little bit older than what we're used to Um, Aquatic Conservation Marine and Freshwater Ecosystems but the actual title of the paper instead of saying (laughs) the journal instead of the title (laughs) Is uh, habitat suitability coverage by protected areas and population connectivity for the Siamese crocodile? 
So we've already mentioned they're in a pretty poor state. What, are they critically endangered? With only a thousand individuals left? I think that's critically endangered. Uh, um, I believe it is, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, sorry. Yes. No, yes. <laughs> yes. Critically they're critically endangered. endangered. Shouldn't laugh about a species being critically endangered. I just couldn't find it in my notes. Yeah, they are. They're critically endangered. Um, and yeah. what's the situation causing that? Said egg collection, egg eating, that is one of them. Habitat loss, that's a big one. Hunting, yep. Farming, yep. So there's people well, going yeah. out and... Hunt- you know, yeah, they're being hunted skins, to stock farms. Um, and accidental death in fish traps, which is an absolute classic. But, hey. The other thing that's also worth mentioning, there's sort of a risk to them. Um, by So there's plenty of crocodile farms out in Southeast Asia, across Southeast Asia, and other places too. Um, but in those farms, there's hybrids of saltwater and Cuban crocodiles along with Siamensis all getting mixed up. So there are fears and risks that breakouts from these farms and sort of accidental reintroductions of hybrids could undermine the existence of actual Siamensis crocodiles. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, it's all well and good to think that you've got a ton of them in captivity in a farm. But, um, yeah, yeah, there's numerous problems with that approach. One of which as you say, hybridization, but also like severe bottlenecking. Although it does seem as though a lot of them are taken out of the wild to stock farms. Yes, or outbreeding though. That's that's the other thing, isn't it? Is if you're taking them out and they're losing whatever edge they had for certain aspects of their habitat, then yeah, you know, we've, we've talked about it in previous episodes with golden mantellas and all sorts. It's difficult to maintain a wild equivalent in captivity mm, yeah you really need it to be locality specific ideally sometimes that's um, not possible but hey well no it's not um so one of the first lines in this paper says that um siamese crocodiles inhabit both lotic and lentic water mm, so very interesting lo- i looked on the line for some etymology lentic is lakes right yeah, so lentic means relatively still. <laughs> Re- relatively. And it's from the Latin lentus, which means sluggish. Oh, like lentils. Nothing to do with lentils. We're not having that debate again. Well, yeah, I um, mean, they can't get away from you, can they? They're sluggish. That didn't works. we talk about sense. this? Yeah. But then lotic is the opposite. It means flowing, which is from the Latin lotus, which is the past participle of laver, which means to wash. So flowing water, wash. Give you a nice wash, washes you off. Anyway, I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> yep. I'll try and remember those, but Lotus, I think I'm going to... Low tick. Sorry. That's going to be forgotten. Yeah, I think I'll probably forget both. Um, but we did mention remember. earlier... So these, this species, the Siamese crocodile, um, it's now restricted where before it was much more widespread. Um It's now found in southern and northeastern Cambodia and um, Laos. And there's a few in eastern Kalimantan in Indonesia. But their range used to be much, much bigger. Mm. Yeah, and it's. I think one of the things that is harming them in this sort of situation is Southeast Asia situation again, which is habitat degradation and splitting up 
of areas is that these guys appear to not have a particularly large range. They don't... I dug up a spatial ecology thing on them about a reintroduced population. Population might be a bit of a generous term. 15 juveniles that were released in um, in Cambodia. And it's, they were followed around by uh, Iametau and they published a paper on it on 20, in 2017 and they had VHF uh, radio transmitters on them followed them around for the best part of a year um, they had some pretty severe difficulties with where they were released because they could only really track them during the uh, dry season so that's chopping up when they could find them but it looked as if uh, they were doing okay in terms of the release, they started going back to the same sites. It looked like they were identifying good sites to be at and building a sort of logical home range. They never found any dead ones, but they did have some transmitter failures, so there are some unknowns there. But um, really, at the end of the day, they sort of stayed in a was it a kilometer to 700 meter sort of radius from where they were released apart from a few females that headed like 10 kilometers upstream i think two females just booked it upstream for whatever reason um but it all looked to be going pretty well and i think this i think they were released around 2012 2013 end of 2012 beginning of 2013 and they were saying it takes a good five years for them to reach sexual maturity so about this time now, I imagine that there are people out there looking into whether they're actually successfully breeding and whether it's carrying on successfully, which would be fascinating to find out because an actual yeah, successful so, reintroduction would be marvellous. Yeah, so this is um, this is the work that was being done. Well, at least the reintroduction was the Cambodian Crocodile Conservation Programme. Okay. And... Um, yeah, so I hadn't seen that spatial ecology paper, but they must be the crocodiles because they in... Mm. I can't um, imagine there's many reintroductions to these guys going no, about. <laughs> no, well, yeah, because they were, they were featured in the um, Global Reintroductions Perspectives handbook by the IUCN. And um, yeah, they, they had okay. the first pilot release of 18, it said in the booklet, into one of several pre-selected release sites. And that was in 2013. So that's almost definitely the crocodiles oh, that'll be that you're the same talking ones. about. I might have yeah. done a typo with a 15 or three might have been excluded from the study because they weren't tracked for long enough. Yeah, quite or, possibly. Or who knows, maybe they didn't have enough transmitters. Yeah, I mean, 15 is a nice round number of transmitters to buy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, they had those ones released. They released 18 in 2013. They also released uh, tw- another 20 in 2014 um, oh. into the same site. So there's more going on. Excellent. Yeah. And then in 2016, they released another seven into a different site and then in 2017 they released another six into the original site of the first two releases so um yeah that's actually like you know a pretty building consistent, momentum yeah it's a really good um conservation program it seems to be um like a real like cambodian led initiative apparently um cambodian people are like generally speaking pretty okay with crocodiles like there's not a lot of um animosity towards them um, there's like there's never been an attack by a Siamese crocodile on a person that's been recorded. Hmm. Um, it's not to say it's never happened, obviously, but at least it's not you know it's far from a it's not in people's minds that they might get attacked by a crocodile. And if people are sort of vaguely accustomed to them, they're pretty chill about it. Like they'll you know use the waterway without any kind of fear. Um, 
that, yeah, that makes a nice this, change. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And this um, this Cambodian crocodile conservation program, they've got thirty five pure Siamese crocodiles, which they're using as their kind of like breeding group. Um, okay. Which, as you because you said earlier, they're often hybridized with Cuban and saltwater yes. crocodiles. So it's a big feat that they've got these thirty five pure ones. Well, there's um, a specific paper all about that as being a. Um... Uh, you know, showing that you could test for and showing that there was hybridization going on. And I don't have the paper to hand, unfortunately. Well, they must have executed those methods and worked out that they're all, you know, good to go. Um, you know, they're all pure, yeah. so to oh, speak. Star, Star et al. 2010, I believe it is. Oh, cool. Okay, right on. Um, but yeah, like you say, I mean, there are still threats to these uh, crocodiles. Um, what was interesting, they were releasing them in quite, um, sort of, uh, remote, hard to reach and quite dangerous areas, apparently. Um, they had talked in the IUCM report about the, the staff that they were doing the releases and probably doing the monitoring as well that you're reading about, mm. um, getting lo- like multiple bouts of malaria and also, oh, which is really, grim. really dark. They found, um, unmarked minefields oh, as well. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so it's pretty okay. crazy. You know, pretty crazy stuff. That's, um, yeah, forget, that's no, no wonder people aren't scared of crocodiles. They've got far worse things to be fearing. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, back to the, uh, back to the old, uh, sort of protected area coverage and stuff that this paper was focusing on. Um, yeah, it was cool that they actually made a big effort to look at connectivity of habitat as well as the suitability of habitat and actually quantify yes. how these areas that were suitable could or, you know, are actually traversable to a real life crocodile. Because it's all well and good having loads of protected areas. But um, if you've got no connectivity, I mean, what's the point? You've just got little relic populations, really. Well, yeah, you either don't have populations that are particularly viable and... Really, at the end of the day, it is not viable to go around reintroducing crocodiles to everywhere they should be now. So what would be nice is to introduce them to a few strategic, well-connected areas and uh, let the crocodiles do the rest and fill in the gaps, right? Yeah, That would be a nice shortcut. Yeah, it was quite shocking to see... Well just how big of an impediment dams are to these crocodiles was quite quite surprising to me well not even yeah, surprising I, just, I, did, I, I don't I, I don't think i realized the extent yeah well i i'd heard about it before the fact that dams are a big issue but i don't think i realized the extent to which rivers in cambodia had been dammed like how many there actually were these hydroelectric mm. dams um it's just mental and well, um, was it another 77 are planned along the mekong I mean, this is crazy. And when you look at yeah. the map, which shows the occurrence of um, the crocodiles, where they still are and where they've been extirpated, it, it correlates so closely to where dams, major dams have been built. And what's really sad is that a lot of the major proposed dams are in the area where they're still surviving, where so far there are much fewer dams. Yeah, um, we should we should pull back a second and just explain what the paper actually did in terms of... Uh actual details. Basically, I had a whole bunch of occurrences of where crocodiles, uh, the assignments, is, uh, crocodiles exist and used a bunch of model, models to work out 
okay, they like this habitat, they like this climate, they like this sort of vegetation. These are good proxies for where they like to exist. And then map that across Southeast Asia, and you get this uh, sort of heat map of where's suitable, where's not suitable, and then they stuck over the top of that where there are protected areas. Yes. And then in terms of the connectivity, they had they had a, a data set that showed where all the decent river systems were, and again, modelled how likely or how easy it is using suitable habitat and these waterways to get from one known population to another. Yeah. 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 And um, well, yeah, it was impressive how much of uh, how much of the different countries where they are, f- are found or have historically been found, what percentage of the countries actually still represented um, suitable habitat? Yes, um, I think that was course, the sort of the best news bit here. <laughs> yeah, but obviously, I mean, for example, Cambodia, sixty-three percent of it is suitable. Um, yeah, Laos, fifty-two percent. Vietnam and Thailand, forty-seven each. So there's a lot of habitat available, but then. That that's like cause for optimism, of course. But then once you actually put that into the context of their connectivity models, it all looks a little bit less optimistic. It does, and it does look like there's going to be need, need some pretty considerable human effort to uh, get them in a lot of these places. And of course, you can't just put these crocodiles back. It's it's never that's never going to work. You've got to at least counter the uh, underlying reasons for them going for disappearing to begin with, right? Because otherwise you're just throwing them into a a sink and they're going to go nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, the dams, the dams are just bad. Um, Well... I I was trying to get to grips with why exactly dams are bad for crocodiles because you think about it on the face of it, um, you know, they're just damming up a load of water. Surely that would be a good thing. But... um, one thing is obviously, the, as we've been discussing, the crocodiles can't actually get past the dams. Um, but yeah, the, the way that the dams change the character and functioning of the river is so dramatic. Um, yeah. So upstream, you have like essentially a huge lake. Uh, downstream, you end up with just like a little trickle, um, you know, flood pulses and things like that, which sustain wetlands are like reduced. So like river deltas and things like that shrink up. There's less sediment um, coming down the waterway, so everything's becoming a little bit less fertile down the road. Um, yeah. And obviously, like, the exact effects of things like that are difficult to unpick on a crocodilian. But when you consider their kind of ecology as this, like, water's edge predator, um, if the river's changing, uh, a modified water level means that they're not going to be able to necessarily nest. Um, the areas in which they're hunting are going to change dramatically. Yeah. And, like... Especially, I mean, we were talking earlier on about how this is an animal which is like nesting on mats of vegetation. Um, it might be that the, the waterway is not wide enough or something like that. Or maybe if they are nesting on the water's edge, they're going to need like a very specific um, amount of humidity. And so, yeah, if the water levels change, that's potentially not going to exist, um, which is pretty shocking. And then you add to that the fact that after there is a dam, uh, the big reservoir which is formed it does serve to attract people to live there. Um, people are fishing in it and stuff like that. So not only has the waterway changed, but then also you get this massive extra influx of people. And as we said earlier, they're going to be trying to hunt the crocodiles some of the time um, or maybe, you know, eating the eggs or even just accidentally catching them in their fishing nets, even if they are trying to leave them alone. So they, you know, the whole thing is exacerbated. It is. And 
anything like dam or infrastructure development, you're going to have massive impacts on the local ecosystem, regardless. You know, that's always going to be the way. But it's a little bit difficult because you can't, you know, Cambodia is a developing country. They need uh, big infrastructure to power stuff. You can't. Uh, what's the other option? I know, yeah, it's all well and good. It's, it's, We've already destroyed all our animals. <laughs> well, a little bit, yeah. So, what's there left to lose? But they've got crocodiles to lose and things. So, it's tough. It's a tough. I wouldn't want to mm. be in a position making those sorts of decisions or working out which is best. But it certainly doesn't look great for the uh, for the crocs along the Mekong if all 77 of those dams go ahead. No, um, they did discuss... Apparently, there's an alternative because... At the moment, hydropower dams dam up the main stream of the water. But apparently there are alternatives um, to doing that. But whether or not they've had much time and effort invested into them, I don't know. Um, I think and you probably need to develop one of those um, salmon guns. Well, this is what they're talking about. Just suck them up and yeah. shoot them out the top of the dam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I've not seen those sort of fish. Haven't you? Oh, they're fantastic. No. The fish goes in and it just, it's like a hose, but for salmon, and it just takes them right up the dam. Express it's elevator. Incredible. That's crazy. I didn't, I didn't know that was the thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, perhaps we just need to get that for a crocodile, whether or not they'd be willing to be fired out of a gun. Who knows? Um, oh, I mean, yeah. it'd, be a, kind it'd of, be an experience, wouldn't it? Yeah. It is actually kind of a bleak paper, this one. Um, in terms of what it means for crocodiles. But, um, yeah, there is hope with this ongoing reintroduction program, at least if people are pretty choosy about where they put them, you know, reintroducing them to places where they've been extirpated but then could go back to um, and realistically connect with other areas. There is hope for the species still. There's certainly a lot of people working on it with with really good intentions. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that there are... um reintroductions happening is a good sign because they are not an easy thing to get set up and going no just waiting for that paper that says out says fully successful breeding population of Siamese crocodiles established in uh, wherever the uh, spatial ecology paper was set Uh, where was that that's what I'm waiting for it must have been in Cambodia well, I mean, it absolutely was in Cambodia, but I wanted to know if it was on the Mekong or not. Uh, uh, Ambil District, Cardamom National Park. Pff, I don't know. Cardamom National Park. That's that's what it says. It's a nice name for a place. Yeah, the Cardamom Mountains, and it is oh. the Cambodian Crocodile uh, Conservation Program that did it too. Cool. Yeah, yeah, I figured as much. Wicked. Um, right, well, well, that's the kind of story of Siamese crocodiles at the moment. Um, yeah. It's not Some downsides, but there's some hope. There's some serious yeah, hope there in there. That's, that's, I think we've done grimmer stories about species before. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say we have. Um, well, should we move on to uh, should we move on to something a bit lighter? The old species of the bye week. Let's let's go, man. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. So um, 
The species of the bi-week paper is Karen, Freitas, Sean Lebon, Grisma, Bauer and Das 2018 Unrealised Diversity in an Urban Rainforest A New Species of Ligosoma from Western Sarawak, Malaysia, Borneo. Yeah, so we're basically talking about a thing that's, if you sort of squint, it's like a really tiny crocodile. Yeah, I would think that's probably the least tenuous link we could give. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I got, man. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hadn't even considered it. I mean, please, how are we going to find a new species of crocodilian that's going to be described? It, what are there, like 24 species of crocodile? Something like that, crocodilian, not just crocodile. Crocodilians in general, I think there's 24. Um, not 100%. Uh, yeah, it's 20-something, isn't it? And it's an even number, I feel. How many crocodilians are there? Let's ask Google. How many crocodilian species are there? 23! Oh, not even. Yeah, 23 or 24, we'll go with that. <laughs> no, it says 24 here on the IUCN. Okay, there we go. It's yeah, they, the West African crocodile uh, has been recently added in 2011. So yeah, there's 24 species. I was right. I, I knew I was right. I shouldn't have second guessed myself. like, I don't know, they, they, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five years or so there is a new crocodile because... I'm pretty sure there's sort of questions surrounding uh, the Nile crocodile and whether that's a species complex. And that sort of stuff. It's a big range. It is, and you've got them in sort of... They are sort of disconnect, disjoint um, populations, certainly west to east across Africa. And then you have a species, a species, a population in uh, Madagascar as well. I know that there have been studies done on it, and I think they erred on the side of just... There's not enough to really call them distinct, but they are separate in some ways. Yeah, yeah. But I well, feel like that's if, just like someone else could come along and do slightly different stuff, and they're like, yeah, of course, separate species. Potentially, and when they do, we'll cover it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, yeah. But yeah, we could have done a new crocodilian, but it would have been something extinct, and we would be treading on Tet Zoo's toes again. Um, and we don't want to do that because every time we do we look foolish <laughs> well yeah who understands extinct animals not me not me so um, yeah Borneo we're in Borneo which is probably a hotbed of undiscovered species um, this is actually the fourth skink to be described out of Borneo since 2016 so they're flying off the press the new species in Borneo you just and, you um, sit down you have a bite of lunch in a nice urban park and a skink runs across your lap steals your sandwich you grab it Oh, it's a new species. Yeah, and uh, this is from the genus Ligosoma, which prior to this paper coming out contained 30 known species. Um, and this is actually the third in the genus to be described from Borneo. Prior to this were um, L. Bamphylidae, which is really hard to say, and L. Boringi. Um, and I mean, those, those aren't new. They were described in the 1800s. So um, yeah, this is the first modern Ligosoma species to come out of Borneo. Um, but you know what I found quite refreshing about this paper? Uh, they actually discovered pictures. it has got good pictures, or but most that it's not in a sort of like doomed situation. What do you mean? It's like actually living oh, in the wild how, in the photo? Yeah, like how many how many species of bi week have we done? That's like 
Yeah, they're found in this tiny pond on the top of the highest peak in the most remote mountains. But someone's going to build a giant factory on top of them. Oh, yeah, we have done quite a few like that. Yeah, that is actually refreshing. I didn't think of that. But I think what I what, what jumped out at me is the fact that they actually discovered this species by finding it. It wasn't in a museum, which many of our oh, species yeah. are. Yeah, that is quite frequent, um, isn't it? Yeah, and obviously there's nothing wrong with a species being described from a museum specimen. Um, they're almost as exciting. But I think just to know that the authors of this paper found this skink and, you know, they fished it out of a pitfall trap in a park and they realised it was something completely unknown. That would be so, so, so exciting. Mm. Yeah, to come across... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, they decided it was a new species. They did some genetic work, which was seemingly quite thorough, nuclear and mitochondrial genes. And um, yeah, morphological characters. This skink has a tail which is shorter than its body, which is quite unusual apparently for the genus Ligosoma. Yeah, the stubby skink. Yeah. Um, I've only ever seen one Ligosoma in the wild and it was dead. Oh, go on with the story, <laughs> <laughs> please. Regardless. I thought you'd remember as well. It was that one that got puked up by a crate. Do you remember that? Oh no, I don't. Yeah. So oh, well, at least it was quite a sort of. You know, at least it was a good death. Well, I mean, not, a good, be not, a not you know, not a good death for the skink, but like it wasn't ran over on the road that you so often see. Yeah. You know. No, yeah, it was vomited up by a crate, uh, but it was an incredible lizard. Um, it was Ligosoma Harold Youngi, which is the... It literally is like, got some orange on it, it's got like tiger stripes. It basically looks like a miniaturised blue tongue skink, just orange. That's my description of it. Sweet. I don't remember yeah. that. I'm ashamed. Maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't see it. Um, yeah, that's possible. But yeah. yeah. What type uh, of crate was yes, it? Um, it was a... Yes, yeah, Candidus, yeah. Mm, okay. Little black and white, little black and white critter. Don't get bin by them. Fifty-fifty chance of survival. <laughs> so they say. So they say. Um, yeah. So this species that's been described um, is Ligosoma samajaya, samajaya, which um, yeah. yeah, which refers to the samajaya forest reserve in Kuching in Sarawak, Malaysia, which is where the holotype was collected. Um, yeah, and as you alluded to earlier, this is like a little urban rainforest park, which has only relatively recently been completely encircled by the city of um, Kuching. Yeah, it's a. I think this is what the most interesting bit of this whole thing is. Yes, it's interesting, it's a new skink, but the whole situation it's found itself in is pretty odd. They've got satellite imagery in the paper of what? 1984 and 2016 and would it be safe to say that the city has doubled in sort of spatial extent yeah I'd agree with that looking at the photo yeah and it's probably a good two kilometers from the edge of the city now whereas before it was just on the edge of the city with continuous uh, forest yeah yeah Pretty, yeah, it's pretty, pretty enclosed. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. Um, but they found it in that Samajaya Forest Reserve, and they also found it in another site about 50 kilometres apart. Um, 
But yeah, the other site is partially logged, so that kind of suggests that these lizards are pretty tolerant of disturbance. Although they did say in the paper that Samajaya Forest Reserve is kind of renowned for finding species which are actually like proper, proper forest dwelling, you know, specialists. But they're not sure whether or not that's because they just haven't died out yet, um, which is kind of brutal. But um, yeah, regardless, it sounds like it'd be a really cool place to visit. Yeah, I think that's sort of that's some of the stuff they they have in the discussion where they have some examples of species that have existed in little parks for quite a while and the diversity hasn't been harmed and then there's other species that have actually quite dramatically lost their diversity and it's getting inbred and not a good situation but I think on balance they sort of conclude that chances are this skink will probably be alright for the foreseeable future Um, as long as it's got decent habitat and a decent number of them remain should be okay. Yeah. Which is is nice. <laughs> it's nice to hear. Yeah. It is. It's always reassuring. Um, it's quite a cool looking little skink as well. Um, it's like... Oh yeah, we haven't even brown. described what it looks like. Yeah, it's like brown on top with little white flecks and this like jazzy yellow underside and a yellow face. Yeah, cheeky face. Cheeky, mm. I'm going to run around and eat bugs kind of face. So, do you know what other animal is brown on top with like little white flecks and a jazzy yellow underside? Um, not with the white flecks, but would you a- escalapian say that perhaps snake? Escalapian, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, I was getting there. I was getting there. You were working your way. I couldn't resist. I was so excited. Yeah, this this lizard is like the lizard version of an escalapian snake. It's actually really uncanny. Um, and obviously, escalapian lizard. snakes. Yeah, they're the best brown nondescript colubrid out there. So this lizard scores pretty highly in my books. Ah, uh, yes. It's nondescript skink. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Yeah. I've only taken it extremely personally. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It was a moment of weakness. I'll never forgive. I'll never forget. <laughs> uh, no, of course all is forgiven, Ben. Um, but yeah, great little skink. Really nice. Cool that um, cool that Borneo's species are coming out of Borneo, and it's cool that um, urban parks are turning up new species. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a nice it's a feel good story. Yeah, happy days. A nice new skink. Yeah, and a happy looking skink at that. Cool. Now, anything else? Anything else? All I have to do is to give a big shout out to our new Patreon, who is named James Roach. Um, oh, thank so you. Thank you very much, James. Um, yeah, super appreciate appreciated. having you on board. And um, if I can comment on your surname, it's great. It's one of my favourite types of fish. Silver with the little red fins. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, do we have any corrections, questions? Mainly corrections. Don't think so. Talk about it, but apologies for this one being a wee bit later than it should be. Yeah, that's largely my fault. I think it both got away from us, to be honest, mate. Yeah. Because uh, we hadn't even talked about it before. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's two weeks already? Okay. Yeah, I know, it did. It just kind of crept up on us this time. Yeah. Um, but never mind. Such is life. It's all good. We'll get there in the end. Um, yeah, oh. so thank you... Go on. I was going to say, I suppose, news is, if you want to read about King Cobras, there's King Cobra paper out there to read now. 
Oh yeah, very cool. Yeah, nice one. So, yeah, congratulations. Self plug. Um. Yeah, what's there to say about it? I'm sure we'll we probably when another King Cobra paper comes out, and we've got a couple to talk about. We'll probably chat about a couple of them. Mate, if you can't use this as a platform to like mercilessly promote yourself, why are we doing it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, t- uh, uh, yeah. All right, I'm convinced. <laughs> wait, yeah, nice wait one, for man. one more, and um, we'll do we'll do a double bill of it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, looking forward to that. I have read that paper and I enjoyed it a lot. So um, yeah, it'd be good to get get heavily involved with it. Yeah, I'd like to point out some flaws and how it's the next one's going to be better. That's what I want to do because <laughs> ran out of words to do that properly in the actual paper, but there's just so much, all those things that can be fixed, and now we can fix them <laughs> we have the technology we do we do we have the manpower <laughs> sweet well happen. um yeah tease them with tease the, the listeners with a potential future king cobra episode cool looking forward to it yeah. um yeah well i think that just about all that remains um look up marshall et al 2018 space for a king or is it space fit for a king space fit for a king Mm, very clever, like what you did there. It wasn't Good me that thought of that. That was, uh, that was Sam Smith who thought of that. Okay. Don't know Sam Smith, but whoever they are, my God, they're witty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all fun. <laughs> yeah. All right, sweet. Well, um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Um, thanks again, James Roach. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We will. Uh, if you can't wait a couple of weeks you can find us on the Twitters at Herp Highlights you can drop us an email if we've got something wrong please if we've got something wrong or you've got questions or anything like that what's that? Uh, HerpHighlights at gmail.com that's the one I think we're probably on Facebook as well aren't we? yes and if you want to buy a toad sticker you can head to uh, our Patreon which there are links on websites and Facebooks and Twitters. It's, it's, it's findable. It's all linked. Everything's all connected. Everyone's got a Google, man. Someone bought a toad mug. Who are you? And let's see you drinking tea out of it. <laughs> all I know is that person has impeccable taste. Because, <laughs> oh boy, would that be the mug <laughs> I would be going for. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, thanks very much for listening. And, uh, yeah, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you for listening. Yeah, well, if we get a wind monkey attack, we get a wind monkey attack. There's ain't nothing I can stop. I can't stop a toxic mammal now, can I?